Hey folks, and welcome to another episode of the Leadership Tales podcast. Delighted to be joined today by Henry Evans. Now, what can I say about Henry Evans? Amazon top 10 author, invited agitator, I love that title, but also peacemaker to C-suite. So he's a keynote speaker. His two areas that are really core to his work are accountability and emotional safety. So that's linking in from how we take organizations to from a strategic process through to execution with accountability. But the emotional safety and the emotional safety officer principle, how he, he takes that and works that is his core. I'd never met somebody so intentional in the work as Henry is and everything in his life has intention to it and I've picked up whenever I hang around with Henry I pick up that intention that care of thought and care for others and uh, it's nice to have a good friend to come and be interviewed on this this podcast and share some of his thoughts and some of his work in here look forward to to hearing your feedback about the amazing Henry Evans Hi, folks. I am delighted to have uh, a very good friend, Henry Evans, who we sat at next to each other at a conference intuitively as we would talk about made a connection. And there was a group of us who have a like-minded view on the world, but actually just enjoy each other's company. So hopefully you'll get the same feel for today about how we get on. But he's got a business that's called Dynamic Results, which is a focus primarily around accountability, but leadership and a deep practice in that work. So I'd love to, him to introduce himself. Hi, Colin. May, may this uh, dialogue have the same uh, ease that our regularly occurring ones have? <laughs> I'm sure it will. I'm sure it will. We've got a lot to talk about, but I'd love to to find out or let the listeners find out a bit about you and uh, and why you do the work you do. Tell us your story. Primarily what Dynamic Results does in the world is help organizations implement their strategies and assess and develop the leaders within them to uh, be equipped to live that desired f future state. But when I was a child uh, with a chronic stutter and scoliosis, I was diagnosed by a team of psychologists and medical doctors. And they said, when you grow up, don't do anything athletic. So I competed in martial arts for 30 years. And they said, don't do anything which involves speaking in public or leadership because of your stutter. And all joking aside, truth be known, I never had that FU moment where I thought I'm going to show the world. I just stumbled and fell into roles that happened to require those skills. Um, martial arts, because I was a young stuttering uh, fool and I would say things that were sometimes insulting and I would lose fights. So I thought better learn to not be impolite yep. as, as the source and also know how to defend myself. And then um, leadership really happened by accident. I was really wanting to do something bigger in the world in uh, federal law enforcement on the international stage. And I happened to have an angel investor offer me funding for my first company. I started that. It did very well for 10 years and it failed spectacularly after the attacks on 9-11. And while I was depressed, with no identity, having lost it all in the role of president, I had two mentors ask me to start advising their companies. So it was through failure that I wound up advising. Interesting. I'd love to dig into a couple of those, but I want to come back to because you hinted it there in the martial arts. And I, I didn't think about this, but the, the way to deal with it, there's a spiritual side strongly to martial arts in terms of you know, the, the obvious thing is stuttering, and that I immediately assume going to the, the defense piece, but actually it's the spiritual side that's, that really grounded you in that. Tell us a bit about that, yeah. Well, well, my course was, was highly unusual. My, my godfather, uh, Jim, who, who is still with me, but, but no longer walking the earth, saw me getting bullied. He was an African-American male. He belonged to a dojo in New York City that was strictly African-American. And the first time he brought me there when I was 10, he already knew this, but it turned out that some of his colleagues in the dojo were former Black Panthers who really didn't welcome um, a young white child into this dojo. And I, I, I remember speaking of, of spirit and energy, this moment when he brought me in, I was intimidated by the size of the human beings 
And one of them walked up to him and said, what is he doing here? And Jim said, well, he's my godson. And, and this is where I train. So this is where he will train. And there was an energetic opening that the guy kind of stepped aside and it felt like a gate opening and I was allowed in. And what they did was they constantly held me at my edge. So I was never able to physically, emotionally, mentally challenge any of these men, but they always kept me right at that precipice, right on, right at that edge of my own capability so that I could find and start to grow my, my limits. And I didn't realize I was learning energy. I thought I was learning fighting. Yeah. <laughs> Tell me more, because the exploration of the energy, because I, I, I'm a big believer in, you know, I've been reading this book, Peak Performance, but it's about stress plus rest equals growth. And there's an element in there that keeping this edge of growth. And I was told to one of our friends, Bill Treasurer, and he was talking about this, you know, when he was learning to dive, the, the, the diving instructor kept pushing the board up half a meter a meter to test him. That's that's a source of energy. Tell us more about what you mean by that. Yeah. Oh, funny. You know, Bill was going below the depths of the earth, and I, and I used to skydive a lot. And skydiving is almost the opposite, and that they keep going up a certain number of meters for each level of testing. But that that energy awareness was not conscious. I was going solely to learn how to keep damage from entering my circle. So I would call the circle the the extension of my arm. Mm -hmm. And if harm was coming within that circle, I wanted to know how to push it out of the circle. It was only upon, uh, I would love to say it was self-reflection or meditation, but sometimes I had to be told uh, that what I was learning was energetic, that sometimes a conflict in our lives doesn't begin with something as obvious as a punch or a kick. It can begin with words. It can begin with an expression. It, 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 it can begin with a tone. And if we, in a business meeting or in, a, in an interaction with, with a loved one, have our awareness on high, if it's, if it's dialed up high, we yeah. pick up these signals from way outside our circle. When our awareness is low, I had two days that way this week after not sleeping well, I was missing all kinds of signals. So have I answered your question? Yeah, Colin? you have. No, I, I love it. I mean, it's uh, for me, it's it's starting to get into some of the things we're going to talk about now because we're we're going to go into and we've we've talked about talking about the hybrid world, but we're talking about a world that has changed massively, and the reading of the situation is going to be the core role of the the leader. And your work is in accountability, but you're you have this title about director of emotional safety, and the ability to read what's happening around you is a core role of the, of the leader when we go into that. So tell us more about this direct through the emotional safety. I want to dig into your the, the 9-11 and what happened after that, but I'd love to just follow the thread that we've got around that, that circle, understanding what's ha uh, approaching you that you were talking about. Yeah. Sure. So right now I have a, more than 13,000 hours of C-suite executive coaching. So when, mm -hmm. I, when I was about 2,000 hours in, I was noticing that the leaders who had the highest performing organizations and who also had the most engagement were not assholes. And what I was reading about high performance leadership and some, frankly, some of the people who are held up as the, the demigods of leadership also had deplorable reputations. Some of them fell quickly in the Me Too movement as they should have. But others, if you would speak to people who work for them, they would say, yeah, they're great at putting numbers on the board, but I left them after I learned about 80% of what I felt I could learn because they were so toxic. The people we were working with who are high performing had strong relationships. Uh, they were highly trusted. When I met my friend, Colm, Dr. Colm Foster, he was just setting out to do five years of research on, on high performance leaders in industry, in the military, in NGOs, in all sectors. Who, who had the, the reputation as best in class. His research proved that this was true, that these leaders were capable of doing something we call creating emotional safety. That's what we called it in the book. And in, and in layman's terms, emotional safety means that you create an environment. And by the way, this is not just leaders. This is spouses, children, parents, coworkers. But let's talk about leaders. Yep where people are choosing one of two very distinctive types of moments as they approach you with bad news. 
if you don't create emotional safety, they're making one of two choices. They're, they're either approaching you very nervously and they're afraid you'll kill the messenger. Or if you've killed them in the past or, to, or tried to, they, they choose to turn around and not approach you at all because the experience of bringing you bad news is so unrewarding, they've just stopped doing it. Now, if they make the more preferable choice, if their experience with you has been that whenever they bring you bad news, they leave feeling appreciated, or if you're a gold medalist, rewarded, they'll keep doing it. So why does this, this matter? If you're capitalistically driven, it matters because you'll get better business results. When you make decisions, you'll be far better informed about what's really happening because people are telling you real time. If you are more like me, if you're more altruistically driven, you get out of bed in the morning wanting to make the world a better place, but you still know that you have to make money to do that. It also pays off because again, people will bring you what's really happening. They will feel better about you and where they work. And my sense is that they'll also be nicer in traffic with cashiers and with their families. It's a relevant point to me, actually, and it's quite a quite emotional because you know we talked about our our parents. My father passing away this year, but my my father, my perception growing up was he was a a very powerful, very strong in his field, but he was also scary. And my friends used to come around and they would all hide behind each other to to say, "Is Colin then coming? You know, is he coming out of play?" And but it's relevant to me now because I've had the feedback from my daughters that who I love and they love me, but that that, that I am a scary people, a person to uh, some of their friends. But I sense it's because what I'm doing is to two points. They're approaching me nervously for some reason, or they're not approaching me at all. And I, and I need to understand why that is. So I'm doing some work on it, but it does resonate to me because I feel like I'm I'm open, I'm friendly. I'm working in there. So it's interesting. So how do you teach, how do you teach somebody to do that? You know, to be that director of emotional safety. Well, Colin, I don't I don't want to fly over the loss of your father because no. that, that would that, that would actually damage emotional safety pragmatically. Yeah. Um, but but also you you and I both went through seeing our fathers through their end of life uh, within mm -hmm. as far as a lifetime goes, a, a, a pretty close window of time within a, a few years. So I hope they are talking now. I'm sure uh, they will be somewhere, <laughs> where, wherever they are. Yeah. Um, the way that we um, teach, and I hesitate to use the word teach, we yeah. because uh, first of all, some leaders, especially high-performing type A's, are insulted by the word teach. Mm -hmm. They're often also, if they are handicapped by being male, they're often not attracted to the word emotional. So we, if we said we're going to teach you something emotional, those are two barriers we're introducing. So we say we're going to have you experience a way to enhance relationships. And we certainly present that capitalist altruistic pair of lenses up front and say, look, you might be here because you, you, you were forced to be and you think it's going to take away from the achievement of targets. If that's the case, let us promise you that it won't. You'll actually achieve your targets better as a result of being here. If you're here because you're attracted to the concept of making the workplace better and keeping qualified and talented people longer, you, you will have a payoff also. But we try to model it. So we don't do anything that is theoretical or academic. We, we ask them to identify a real-time, real-world challenge they're having uh, in relationship with another person at work. This can be a coworker, boss, direct report, peer, customer, vendor but nothing hypothetical. Um, we then introduce them to some concepts of how would you either give what might be thought of as bad news in an emotionally intelligent, emotionally safe way, or much more importantly, how would you respond? So we, we'll, we'll have people tell us when they first heard this news, how they responded to it, how they think, how they were feeling, mad, sad, glad when they responded to it, and how they think the other person might have been feeling. And that's usually our starting point. And we call that, a, it's kind of a benchmark measurement of their introspective awareness and their external awareness of how someone else might have been feeling. Then we have them do some more experience. And then we ask them the same question in a slightly different way. 
And what we're looking for is, is to see if those awareness scores have increased at all. And with almost every personality type, with almost every person on the IQ scale, there's been a significant improvement in just the first in interaction. Then we continue for uh, four to six weeks. So it's it's almost a purposeful practice. It's almost not hardwiring. I'm doing some work on positive intelligence myself about a neural pathway. It's opening up a new neural pathway for them to feel different, not to do the fight or flight, but to work in a more curious way, as our mutual friend MBS would, would talk about. Just be a bit more curious. I love that. Good. So just going into this, this concept of the uh, the hybrid world now, how's what's your views at the moment? Because it's the biggest question I get from all my clients at the moment. And emotional safety, psychological safety, all of these things are coming in here. Nobody knows what the hybrid world is going to say uh, and do. Um, nobody knows how it's going to work. And it's almost a, a, a key part in organizational uh, performance and history for a number of organizations just to say, so how are we going to predict and how are we going to work with the future? What's your views and the work you're doing at the moment? What's it telling you? Well, Colin, first, let me answer your question with a question, because I hear the word hybrid being mm -hmm. used a lot. What does that mean to Colin Hunter? Yeah, good, good question. And there's probably a few people who are listening go, what the hell is he talking about? So um, <laughs> it's a great one. I knew, I knew at some point you're going to turn the tables on me and I love it. It's good. Um, so for me, the hybrid is, you know, we had the, everybody was in the office um, and the majority of people were in the office. So they had to be in the office at some point. Then we had COVID and everybody moved to virtual, including myself. And it had huge benefits in some cases. My family life improved massively in there. And for some people, their organizational effectiveness became improved. For some, it was a nightmare. The younger folks we've got who've got young kids and therefore they were doing their jobs plus homeschooling plus doing all of this. But there was a general feeling from organizations and the employees that this was okay. This is a new way of, of, of doing things. And, and therefore, can I just stay working at home and not have the two-hour commute a day or three hours in the London, the London context? But organizations are starting to have that negotiation around. So are we opening up the office? How many days? You know, it's it's almost a, it is a negotiation. Is it three plus two, three at home, two at work? Or is it two at home, three, whatever it is that they're starting to do. So we're starting to get to the point where organizations are reinventing themselves with that. Um, and I'm, I'm interested in your views around the emotional safety and the work you're doing in leadership about what, where you think organizations will go or where they should go. Yeah. Well, we're, we're deeply involved as, as strategy implementation partners with companies that are figuring out re, RTO return to, to office or RTW return to work. We went remote in 2012. Um, as, as our business was growing globally, our office building and headquarters was um, more and more empty. And I was looking at the SGNA of this office building and how sometimes I was the only person in it during a, a very good month or a year. And so we sold it. So, so we did, we were not impacted um, by COVID in the way most organizations were, except in one tremendous way. There was certain work we did that I believed in March of 2020, probably March 6th, 6th March 2020, not only should not be done remotely, but could not be done remotely effectively. And it's the very work we do with our with our clients, working with C-suite teams to execute strategy. When I flew home on March 6th, on March 7th, our largest client said, Henry, look, we're, we're still open to doing our April session uh, with you, but we have this other session with you in March uh, in about two weeks. So here are your choices. You can lose us as a client or you can figure out how to deliver it remotely. Now we had been doing it 17 years in person. Yeah. And I fundamentally believed it should not be done remotely. So, I was with so you. <laughs> yeah, 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 yeah. Of course, so, so many of our colleagues yeah. were um, because we think what we know is how it is. And I know it works in person, therefore it must always be in person. Um, so the first thing we did was have to test that that theory. We decided we didn't want to lose our, our largest client. Uh, we thought that um, they were challenging us to improve and come up with a hybrid offering uh, in much less than an optimal amount of time. It was actually eight business days. Wow. Uh, 
So we're noticing a, a few things that I think our listeners have to be aware of. Mm. Um, one is be willing to, to try things and be willing for them to fail, but set the expectation that they might upfront. So as you're figuring out how many people should come back to work, in what shifts, what the physical locations should be, plexiglass or not, um, hand sanitizer or or not, let you, let your employees know that you're making your best educated guess on the day you're making it. It is all a hypothesis and a test, and you will continue to adjust as you learn what works and what doesn't. But let's start with some bad news for all people, not just the ones who who are choosing who returns to work and how, but all human beings who um, are working with other humans. In your ability to read the emotional well-being or emotional safety or emotional state of other people when we were all in the same office, so think pre-COVID, we all fell onto a bell curve. Some of us were really great at it. Others of us were not great at it. And then there's also a self-awareness curve. Some of us who were great at it had no idea we were better than others. And some of us who were not good good or, or great had no awareness that we were lagging. Yeah. As we've gone remote, you have not gotten better at reading other humans. You've gotten worse. So wherever you started, reading people over a screen, even as you and I are now, Colin, we've, mm -hmm. we've broken bread, we've had wine, um, I want to deep dive this difference in how your daughters view you or viewed you in the past yep. versus others. Even you and I cannot read, read each other as effectively through this medium as we can when we're in 3D. So the next question then becomes, how do I get as, as close to my highest self as I can get in this format? Because if it's hybrid, the people that are in the room with each other will have an advantage that you attending remotely are sorely lacking. And it's yep. that extra edge of awareness. Am I answering your question? Yeah, you're, well, you're bang on in what I believe, and it's, it's, it's interesting. But it's also, you know, I've listened to a number of people talk about that. The in-room pe people have an advantage over the, the people at home, even though they, for the, the whole year, we've been on a level playing field. So how do you, how do you level that playing field for people? Yeah. And a lot of the emotional safety training we do, take the training. We, we used to think that the training really, even though we had an online offering and we had an e-school, we thought it was not as effective as in classroom training. Mm. But our clients are showing us that, that they don't want to go back into the classroom. The ones yes. who used us in classroom, now you work with us remotely, don't want to see us again. And it's hard not to take that personally, but they don't want to see us again. Oh, um, yeah. <laughs> Maybe it's, for dinner. It's weird. Our scores went up when we were virtual versus face to face. It was incredible. Now, yeah, whether our, whether there's some data behind that or there's a shift, I don't know. But I'm I'm hoping not to take a person. Put it that way. Yeah, I love my face to face. <laughs> so, going back to this this piece, and you had a a lovely expression that I heard, um, close to your higher self. That's obviously something that is is important to you, but it's going to be important to almost level the playing field. How do we get everybody to be at the highest self in that space? Yeah, and engage. Is that what you're saying for the leaders, and is that what we're saying for people? In, in yeah, we because we work in a leadership context. I'm 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 often, and we are often stating things in that context. But those things are also true for us at home as significant others, parents, children, friends, and family. So I know, I know something now about your emotional intelligence 360 mm -hmm. because I've experienced you as a warm, accessible, emotionally available, open, collaborative, fun person. Mm -hmm. Now, that's how I would rate you as one of your raters. I would be in the other category. Mm -hmm. Your children would be in the friends and family category, and they would have rated you differently. So what mm -hmm. I've learned about Colin is Colin's not the same in, in every Raider group. Yep. And so highest self, and this is what we look at in a 360 assessment, is whether you're scoring low or scoring high within various Raider groups, is your self-assessment close to how that Raider group rated you? If yep. that answer is yes, you are operating as your highest self with that Raider group. You are self-aware that you might not be showing them your best or you're self-aware that you are showing them your, your best. 
So there are two gaps we try to close in development work. One is if there's a delta between how you see yourself and how others see you, we want to close that gap. While we close that gap, if there's a delta between rater groups, meaning perhaps your family didn't rate you as highly as as the others, uh, yeah. Mr. Colleagues. Treasurer, yeah. MBS, Henry, we, if, if we all rated you high, higher, how do we close that gap? And, and, and that means bring, bring you up mm. in the rater groups where you might be a bit lower. Mm. So that's really clear for me now. And, and we were talking about something before we came up on air about how you, you do this work to match up uh, almost in a, a three-way between the, the, the individuals doing the, the 360, their line manager, and you said something fascinating. I've never seen this before, and I think it, it might be unique to you, where you you almost take a leader and you take one of your 21 competencies and you say, so if they rate this as coaching is really important to them, then even if you self-rate as a, a rater against that uh, on your amber, you would give them a red because it's it's under higher scrutiny. Tell us more about that. Yeah. Well, so the the leadership edge assessment, we built that about twelve or thirteen years ago. It so it it it's very much a hybrid assessment because it is a statistically valid one, but the assessor can use some data to subjectively change some of the algorithmic scores. You just gave one of the examples. Yeah. We're measuring the 21, 21st century leadership competencies. So let's say that one of those is analytic thinking and one of those is uh, coaching. Here are two very different types of competencies. They require two very different mindsets and skill sets. Um, we believe that leaders, supervisors make subjective assessments when it comes to human capital. So they hire, fire, promote, demote using data and subjectivity. Like I just, I don't have a good feeling about him, so I'm not gonna move him up. I do have a good feeling about her, so I'm going to give her this promotion. In the assessment, we begin by getting boss or supervisor feedback. What did they value most? And, and to the example that you just raised, if they rated analytic thinking as the most important competency of, of the 21, and now the person we're assessing scored yellow, which is effective in analytic thinking, our assessor may downgrade them to red, which means needs development. Because for that boss who holds analytic thinking as being so important, effective may not be good enough. And we're not saying this as a reason not to hire or move them up the org chart. We're saying both the person and the boss need to be aware that there's a delta, there's a gap in expectation and ability. And so the assessee should work on their analytic thinking. Perhaps there's a program they can enroll in. And the boss has to lower their expectations for some period of time while development is happening. I love that. So good, good. back to the hybrid work, you know, we're, we're going to a potential thing where the, the playground is, is not level. You're talking about the fact that we, we were, some of us were good, some of us were poor in terms of judging and noticing these pieces. For a leader that's in that room without you and I in there, yeah, I'm working. How how do you get that brought to life now? And what would be your advice to that? Yeah. How do you catalyze the emotional safety with a leader that you are not present yeah, with? Because with. That, that's Ooh. your coaches in the room and they're giving the rating and they're almost manipulating some of the, 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 the data to be able to give that. But when somebody's in that room and they've got to read it themselves and you talked about that, how, how do you advise people to do that? Uh, so how do you advise how do you advise a peer or a subordinate to pick up signals? Yep. Yep. Okay, so specific to e emotional safety. Yeah. Yeah, so so let's pretend that uh, that you're my boss. Mm -hmm. And like most humans, you have your most effective days and you have uh, other days where you're not your most e effective. And I'm approaching you with bad news on both days. If I've approached you with bad news on your most effect effective day, you've done a, a few things. One is if I've knocked on, on, on your door, be it in a hybrid virtual form uh, or in 3D, and I give you that question we hear so often, Colin, have you got a minute? Yep. 
now you read it. <laughs> yeah. yeah, it's not it's not going to be one minute. There's not a lot of in- integrity in my question, mm-hmm. and um, and I add a second part. I say I've got some I've got some bad news, mm-hmm. or I've or I have to tell you about a problem. What you do in the next nanoseconds matter tremendously. On your highest self day, you might go, "Wow, I was um, really into what I'm working on right now." but I'm also really into supporting you and our team if there's a problem. So let me put this aside and I can take a minute right now um, or take five right now. Please tell me about it. So you invite me to share this news. That's highest self. While I'm expressing myself and telling you about, about this problem, which in the most challenging scenario could be about your leadership style or the way you led a certain meeting. You're being curious, open, inquisitive. You're you're asking me for more data, not in a defensive way, but in a genuinely curious way. When I'm done, let's say you fundamentally disagree with my data. You park how you feel about my data on the side and you thank me for my courage, willingness, and commitment to share my data with you. You ask for time to reflect on it. If I approach you on one of your lowest self days, same question. Have you got a minute? I've got some bad news. You could, uh, on the worst side of the scale, say, Henry, um, I don't know if you can tell, but I'm really busy right now. I've heard um, that before. <laughs> so, so that, that yeah. response greatly decreases the chances that I will ever bring you bad news again. If we ask people how they feel when they're leaving this interaction, just at that point, after the first few nanoseconds, I felt insulted. I felt dismissed. So to answer your question directly, when you don't have a Colin Hunter or a Henry Evans in the room to coach you through these moments, first, when you're approaching somebody, see if you can feel how they're feeling before you even start speaking. So by looking at them or by observing them, can you tell if what their receptivity is? If their receptivity is low, you might use what we call in the training a permissive approach and say, Colin, it looks like you're really busy. Have I got that right? Yes, Henry, I'm I'm swamped. I have some news that might be difficult for you to hear, but I also think it's important. What might be a better time and place to talk about it? Now, what I'm doing is I'm letting you choose the field of play and the time of play. And you say, well, um, I'm also hungry. So perhaps after lunch, how about uh, you circle back to my office at 1400? And that's when I come address it. So, so one is, can you preemptively scan the other person? And then of course, can you scan yourself after or during and or after the interaction with this person? How do you feel? Do you feel like they appreciated you bringing them bad news? If so, it's predictable you'll do it again, which will mean your organization's more competitive because it makes decisions faster and with real-time information. If your self-scan is, I really didn't enjoy that experience and I fear bringing bad news to that person again, your limbic system will probably prevent you from doing it. And that will make your organization less competitive. Mm. And if I link it to the hybrid world that we would define, then the director of emotional safety, almost this is an even more critical time to find a space where people can share and bring their issues, bring their views of what they want to happen and not happen in there is so important. I love that. Thank you for that, sir. I'd love to. The other area of your work, which it fascinates me, is accountability, seeing I've avoided it most of my life Yeah, when I was in employment and why I describe myself as being totally unemployable. Um, you and I both. <laughs> Talk to to me about the word, because in one of your videos I was watching, accountability is a punitive process to most people. And and it got a laugh in the audience because everybody said, we all agree with that. It's like, you need more accountability. Oh, God, really? Honestly. But how do you counteract that? What's what's your work been? In the the book, Winning with Accountability, we talk about a concept called front-loading. So yes, we've we've all been taught of accountability as being a punitive concept. Um, I'll often ask a C-suite team or or an audience in a, in a keynote, when do you apply accountability? And the answer is the same in every country. We've worked in more than 80. It's the same with every age group. And it's also very relative to where you are in the hierarchy of the organization. So when we ask people in C-suite roles, 
what is accountability, they have very positive views. Accountability means high performance, promises kept, outcompeting other organizations. As we go down the org chart and we say, what does accountability mean? They say blame, punishment, being fired. There's a tremendous amount of fear around it. And that's because we have been trained to think of accountability as something we apply after a relationship or a project has failed. Front-loading means, even when we think we don't have time to do it, I'm coming to you before we start the work and saying, Colin, I've got an idea of what the finished product looks like. And I think I've used a lot of oxygen and words to describe what I think. What have you heard? What do you think the finished product looks like? And as you reflected back to me, if we're in alignment on these points, we're likely to have less friction, less disagreement, less uh, redo. So if we're manufacturing, we're not going to be redoing work. There'll be less relitigation during the course of the work because we took those few extra minutes to make sure we're aligned. If you have a manufacturing business or a, a distribution business where there are where there are hard quantitative costs associated with misalignment or misunderstanding, you'll simply have a higher profit margin because you will have had less, uh, you will have had a lower error rate as you do the actual work. So we say, if you think you don't have the time to discuss how to do the work correctly the first time, then you're telling us you do have the time to discuss and do the work twice after you've done it wrong the first time. I love that. I love that. Yeah. And that's my experience of of being led in the past until I, and it's interesting because I think what you're talking about is something we, that one of my old bosses used to talk about brief back, check back that they used in the military, which was they're briefed, but the brief back then tell me what you've heard. And it's how often there was a misalignment between what was said and what was given back in the, the brief back to check. I love that. So the front loading, what I also love is the term relitigation. Of that, I love your terminology, sir. You know I do. Uh, as you go through that, so with the accountability piece and and thinking about the, the work in there, there's a there's a four part framework to it. Because you talk about front loading, is am I right in that? You've got a four part framework. Yeah. So it's funny. Our accountability method and the and, and the book grew in popularity because of a four part framework that mm. is part of the accountability method, but it's one of 14 tools. So it, that's called the accountability puzzle. And, and sure we can, we can use it briefly. It is, it, it is part of the training, but it, but it is not at all the entire training in the brief back that you just mentioned, mm. I would give it back to you in four ways. I would say, so here's the clear expectation that mm -hmm. I hear you want from me. So that is a three slide uh, PowerPoint, or it is a one page, uh, Google Doc, or it is a piece of foam core that illustrates how our UK sales are doing in Q1 of our fiscal. The second quadrant would be the specific date and time. So I'm hearing that you need this by uh, 20 June, 1500 Central European time. Yep. Um, the third quadrant is, I hear, Colin, that you want me to do this personally and not delegate it. So you want me to be the, the single owner of this work being done because of all the conversations you and I have had in the past. But alternatively, if I decided to volunteer someone on my team to do the work, now we're in the fourth quadrant, which is share. So now that you and I have agreed on the clear expectation, the date and time, and you've delegate and you've asked me to take charge, I will be responsible for it. Since I'm delegating it to Leandra, I now have to share with Leandra that she has been volunteered and repeat this process with her. Say, so here's the promise I've made to Colin. Can you tell me in your own words what it sounds like? But also, Leandra, is it possible that I over-promise? And I have to make it emotionally safe for her to say, Henry, I love your optimism, but there's no way we can have that for Colin in that, to that level of quality by that date. So one of us has to go renegotiate with him now. And for me, this is a person who doesn't like process, doesn't like detail, but I love the fact that it's purposeful practice of a process to get you in it. And I, I see all my screw-ups as a leader are about the time and the energy I put into something like that or don't, in my case. I love that. I want to take us away to just explore, because the person I know 
loves what they do and the teaching and I hear in the voice and I'm, I'm learning something. I'm getting some free consultancy here, which is great. No matter that we're doing a podcast, it's, it's, it's very good. But I'd love to explore with you a couple of things. And the first is the playground you create because I've, I've stood behind you at a Starbucks queue and I've seen the process and the playground that you do in terms of your love of, you know, the, the coffee, the different flavors, everything else. And I would love to explore what playgrounds do you create for yourself that you, you would like to share? So um, I'm, I'm really looking forward to going through your book in detail and fully mm -hmm. understanding the context of playground as defined by Colin Hunter. Um, yeah. From a place of of, of relative ignorance, um, my 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 mission in life, which very much shows up in a Starbucks line, is to leave. And the operative word is every, mm -hmm. every person and situation better than I found them. So when I'm in a Starbucks line, and I'm reading the emotional state of the barista and the other people in line, I was a waiter. I remember what it's like to to serve people. I remember the full bell curve of humanity you are serving. And of course, we're all volatile people. So we are good on some days in that Starbucks line, bad on others. So the first thing I have to overcome is my own introversion because I'm more comfortable when I don't interact at all with the people in line or the person taking my order other than to simply order, receive my coffee and exit like SEAL Team 6. <laughs> A playground I create is thinking about one of two questions or both. Mm -hmm. One is what will make me feel good without causing harm to others or, 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 or taking from others in a harmful way. So that's pretty easy to, to, to do. Sometimes I'll go so far as to when I order a cold brew or a nitro at Starbucks, I'll ask for it in a paper rather than a plastic cup. I feel like I might be doing a little bit of harm with the plastic cup, very little harm with the paper cup. Sometimes I will uh, ask them what they enjoy that has low sugar. And if it sounds good, I'll say, you know what? I trust you. I'd like to enjoy what you like. Well, yeah. May I have one? May I have one, please? Mm -hmm. And having somebody express trust in them rather than simply try to take service from them all day might make a difference in their day. Now, that. am I answering your question? Yeah, in, well, you in are. Context of, of playground. Because you've done it with me, whether you whether I was conscious of it or not. You know, the the way you you and I's relationship. You, you, we've, we've got to know each other, but there's a, there's a gift that you give people when you meet them in terms of the way you treat them. And, you know, whether it's myself or Sharon or whoever it is that you, you give, you're always thinking of the other person, even in that case where they're supposed to be serving you, that's their role as their accountability. You're giving them a gift, which I, I love. I would love to think, and I'm going to give you a definition of the playground because your work comes from somewhere. Yep. And it comes from a, a passion. Uh, and I, the playground for me is how you stretch the work you do. Because you've got clients who want Henry. yeah. And the, the main reason they want you is because of the exceptional job you do. How do you create playgrounds to stretch yourself in that context to keep yourself relevant? Now, I, I'm hearing two questions, you, you, even if you're only asking one. Because right now, the company is very much focused on de-Henryizing dynamic results so that fewer people want Henry yep. and they still want our group, our mm -hmm. collective. Yep. So is your question about how, how do we do that? Or, or is it about how do I create playgrounds where I can have fun and thrive in an organization of my own creation? I think that's the, the one I'm more interested in because I'm desperate to find out exactly what you're going to do and how you're going to do it. But I, I would love to understand for some people, because I'm de-risking my organization by trying to get rid of me. So it's less me in there. So I'm in the same place. But that is a playground. That's testing and not you know getting the clients to run for the hills and go find somebody else. So how are you doing that? Let's just explore that one. I'm aware of your time. So um, I don't want to take too much time, but I'd love to explore that one just for a second. Good. Yeah. Well, first of all, I led the dehenryization of um, the firm for two years, and I had very limited success. I, mm -hmm. I was not very good at it. Our new president, Christopher Harrington, uh, is a former C-suite client. So he went through our transformational change process, leading an international organization, and his next career move was to buy part of our company. 
He's in charge of about half of what I used to be in charge of, including dehenryizing the company. And he's already done some brilliant things. One thing he did was he iterated with the team. He looked at some reasons why companies hire us and said, okay, what would be a version of that work that is so Henry dependent right now that we could create without Henry and offer to clients without Henry and deliver to clients without Henry? So they came up with basically a strategy implementation light. So if you do it with Henry, it's a super intensive two-year process. The um, implementation light offering is one year. They almost never hear my name mentioned in the process. Um, they say, yeah, it's based on principles that our founder wrote about in this best-selling book, but we don't need him. The process doesn't require him. Here are the people who would actually do it, and here's why they are a better choice than him. So, so actually creating new products that were not from my brain, that are uh, iterated from things I thought of, and not making me part of the offering. But, but there's something really epiphanal he said. Sorry, he says many things that are epiphanal, but two on this subject. One is he said, Henry, you're, you're not just the founder and CEO, you're also an employee. So you need to be doing work you love, same as you want our, our staff doing work that they love. So what's the work that, that you cringe that makes you want to have a Guinness or a bourbon when you even think about it? And what's the work that gets you out of bed pumped and, and excited? And I said, pumped and excited is having impact working with clients. Um, reaching for bourbon or Guinness would be anything operational or involving uh, the company's finances, any of the commercial aspects, even pricing. I don't, I don't like talking about that. Um, I like talking about what, what's the problem can we solve it? And if so, let's get started. So he immediately took a lot of the work I didn't like away from me. Mm. And one way they've done it effectively is they've not only taken the responsibility away from me, they've disinvited me from the meetings. Nice. So I, I'm, I'm not in those meetings. I am not invited. And I have a sense that I'm not missed. Mm. <laughs> How are you taking that? Lie in the couch for a second. How are you taking that? <laughs> with with the big smile you, you can see <laughs> i'm i'm ha i'm happy not to be missed and happier not to be in those meetings it's fantastic cool um i want to go to the the playground that you want to create for yourself i want to end with that because you've had a a great career great history we haven't touched on the 911 piece but you've you've found an opportunity to reinvent to craft something which you are so good at so what next what's the new playground you're going to create what what companies currently working on is giving me you know mbs talks about this juliet font talks about this but it's creating what juliet would call white space for me so as they're taking things off my calendar they're not replacing them. And what is next is for me to do two things. It's to develop new thought leadership for us and our clients, but it's to develop this thought leadership through a new, a new channel, which is to, for me to, as part of my job, find thought leaders not named Henry with thought leadership that is not from Henry and let them benefit from the platform we've built. So we help publish their ideas. We help productize and build e-schools and trainings, uh, even classroom trainings around their ideas. We help do train the trainers around their ideas. And of course, we would want the ideas to be complementary uh, to accountability and emotional safety, but also distinctively different. So, so, so the next step is for us to take this platform we've built over 18 years. Yesterday was our birthday and provide it to other thought leaders. Mm. I love that because that's, if you take technology, you take software, it's about bringing other people's ideas together, bringing a, a community which fits so well with you in terms of your engagement community piece. So going to that white space, there's a principle that I hold uh, in my head, which I heard, which is to be more effective, you don't need to add things, you take things away. Yeah. So if you were to go back and take away and strip away everything, what would be the final thing that you would say that Henry Evans is exceptional at, that he is passionate about? Oh, what Sorry. I love about you, Colin, yes. One thing I love about you is you ask painful, painfully deep questions. So I, I will say this. I was in my 50s before I was willing to articulate my own superpower. And... 
I have two very frustrated mentors who have been trying to get me to do it for 20 plus years and say, why can't you simply speak to your own strengths as cleanly and concisely as you do the strengths of others? And I had a myriad of reasons. I think if I have a superpower, it is the ability, and I'm not saying this uh, tritely, I think I can very quickly assess a need, very rapidly assess if I have the right resource to meet that need, and then very rapidly deploy that resource to, to meet that need. Um, so I'm, I, I can see what a problem is in terms of sy systems thinking quickly. I can tell if we have the right resources or if I know the right resource outside of our organization. Um, and then I usually get the introduction made to an external resource or I can figure out our own capacity and availability to meet that need rapidly. That's some brain to be able to do that. It's um, It's been a delight to talk to you. I wanted to give people the opportunity who want to, to connect with you to, to understand where they can get in contact with the uh, dynamic results and obviously yourself as well. Where can they reach out to you? Um, so if they have a general uh, inquiry, they, they can reach out to more info at dynamicresults.com. If they wish to reach me, they can reach me at hevans at dynamicresults.com. And part of being accountable is I will respond within a business day. Now that might be my out of office assistant promising when I will respond in more detail. Yep. Yep. But my goal is to respond to every message within a business day. Good. Henry, as always, we could go on and talk and talk and talk. And I love the fact that you've been able to flip it around and ask me questions in there. I would expect nothing less. And I'm looking forward to actually that we get to reciprocate and I'll come back on to, on to one of your sessions. So, and I'm hoping I can flip that around and hopefully get there, you know, get payback is a bit a dish served cold. But anyway, <laughs> only joking. <laughs> well, you have raised the gauntlet because traditionally my questions wouldn't be as good as yours. So now I have I much work to do in preparation. I can't wait to see you in, in person, sir, but it's been a delight virtually to reconnect with you and for the listeners to hear the work you're doing. Henry Evans, uh, thank you very much. As always, thank you for having me, Colin. So that was Henry Evans. Uh, amazing experience to go through and talk with a gentleman who has that rigor, that discipline, the hard work, the purposeful practice he's gone through. I also love the fact that he's moved on from his role. He's brought in somebody else to help him to, to run the business and he's moving in a, on a journey towards the next phase of his life. And with that goes clear handover, clear accountability. And you know, there's a lot of work in my time that I'm trying to do in my business and trying to work up the leadership team to take over the, the business that's sustainable that takes me out of it. And the, the owner syndrome around the business and the control freak in me, I look at what Henry's been able to do and how he's been able to work. And, and it's, it's always an inspiration to me. So there's something very, very strong in there. But I think my major takeaway is the discipline that he has to any interaction he has with clients. And therefore there's a structure. And as we say, there's always bad processes. But for him, his process allows businesses to get clear on accountability, winning with accountability, and allows organizations to, to roll that out to their teams in a brilliant way. So if you want to get in contact, Henry Evans you know, on LinkedIn um, and learn more about him, he's got his books in there that you'll be able to, uh, to pick up on, but delight to have him on the podcast. Mm -hmm.